Welcome to Bi Plus, podcasting for the Bi Plus universe. I'm Elizabeth Meacham, here with my co-host, Amy Leibowitz, and today we are joined by Melissa Falavino, author of Tomboyland Essays. Welcome, Melissa. Can you provide us with a short introduction? Yes, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, my, my first book, Tomboyland, just came out. Uh, it's a collection of essays that deals um, in some part with um, the Midwest and the small town in Midwest where I was born and raised um, and uh, a lot of other subjects um, around Midwest like softball and F5 tornadoes and potlucks um, and guns and sort of the ways that those subjects intersect with larger questions of gender and identity and sexuality and the body and violence and class um, and, you know, a lot of stuff there. <laughs> um, I live in New York now. Um, I have been here for about 10 years, um, and I'm a writer and a teacher and uh, was an editor for a long time. Um, yeah, that's me in a nutshell. So I got to just throw this out there. I feel like an interest in the weather is completely bi-culture. I just... Oh, I just yes. think it is. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> so my son has been obsessed with the weather probably for his whole life, including owning a weather radio, yes. which he, you know, gets all excited every time it goes off. And he is also bisexual. So, <laughs> yes. so, so and, and I always feel like, like that's just a, it may not always be the same thing for everyone, but yes, I definitely think an interest in the weather and weather patterns is totally bi-culture. I wonder what that's about. I've definitely <laughs> thought of that before. And like, it's so interesting, you know, and I, I mean, I definitely don't think that it's coincidental, you know, like, no. <laughs> I think that so much of my own obsession with the weather came from like these questions that were starting to arise in me when I was an adolescent that were like, you know, who am I and what is this body that is changing and, and like, and sort of recognizing these, um, the, the volatility of structures that we learn when we're really young and like that those actually are not, you can't always rely on them. And um, so, yeah, someone needs to write a book about the intersection between um, the weather and bisexuality for sure. <laughs> Maybe that'll be my next book. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You could turn that whole essay into a book. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Definitely. When you were talking about the volatility structures, I think there's, especially the age, we're kind of all Gen Xers here, just barely. You know, it's, um, you know, I'm, I on, I'm on, on the, I'm on the I'm tenuous cusp in the middle. Yes. But, yeah. Um, we're kind of the last generation that we were raised. Things are the way they are, and I think the younger generations definitely. Um, but everything's up with all the information they have and all the uh, access they have to, to social media and texting each other and everything. They seem to be a more allowed to question these things than we are, mm -hmm. um, which is great. And, and we're allowed to now, but I mean, back then, back in the day, you were this, you were a girl, you were mm -hmm. um, either straight or gay. And actually mm -hmm. at my end, it was you were straight <laughs> you know there were <laughs> these yeah. absolutes that we were given and then you do feel like your whole life is just once you come to that questioning age 
and you realize everything is changing. Everything I thought I knew was solid is not. And it's like you said, the volatility of, of nature there um, within ourselves and our bodies. Definitely. Yeah. I, I get that. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know, and yeah. religion, you bring that up a lot. Um, it, it, you think your religion is telling you how to do everything. And especially if you're in a yeah. rigid structured, um, rigidly structured religion. Right. I felt like that was so relatable as I was reading. I was like, oh my gosh, I can relate to this. And what was what was funny was that I, because um, you didn't name the, the youth organization, but I was like, oh, oh, that's got to be Young Life because I was a Young Life volunteer. So I recognize like certain like bullet points yep. <laughs> where you just, yep. it's just so uniform across the board. So that was very interesting to me um, that uh, that I could that I could relate to that and go okay, but um, you were just after when I because my youth group was just church based, okay. and then that was the time when it was kind of transitioning. I think a little bit more to some of these more community based organizations yes. right around that time, and that was like right around the time when it when it was like just the beginning of purity culture and right before what's his name wrote that book about I kissed dating goodbye. Was that oh, yeah. Harris? Yeah. Um, wow. So yeah, it was like right before then. So that, so um, I remember, and I was, um, I was a young life leader for middle schoolers. Um, mm -hmm. And um, so that was just so, it was, it was very relatable. Yeah. I mean, it's really funny that you could, identify that it was Young Life, but yeah, it was definitely Young Life, um, and it was, it was interesting, you know, this was probably, like, I, I joined when I was in middle school, like, late middle school, which probably was, so that was, like, early 90s, and then yeah. became a leader when I was in high school, um, in sort of mid to late 90s, and, and yeah, it was definitely separate from the church, so, like, you know, I was, kind of brought up in this um, evangelical Lutheran church. So pretty, pretty liberal, you know, part of the ELCA structure. Um, but Young Life in our, in our very small town functioned outside of any church. Um, and really, I think some of the criticism that it got in our town was that it was pulling kids out of their own church communities mm. and really like, you know, uh, say this messaging was like, come, come join Young Life. You know, you don't need to be in that old, stuffy church you can be mm -hmm. with the cool kids mm -hmm. in the in the cool group and like we listen to jars of clay and dc <laughs> talk and we go to lock-ins at the ymca and play basketball and it's not really about jesus it's about like you know i don't even know what what they said it was about but it was definitely about purity culture that was a huge part of it it was like yeah. you know we all wore the jesus fish rings on our wedding fingers on our on our ring fingers and like you know, pledge to not wow. do drugs and not drink and not have mm -hmm. sex. And these are the things that we're telling the middle schoolers not to do when obviously we were all partaking in it. <laughs> yeah. And going so to these what did your parents and... think of all this? Because your parents, <clears throat> uh, grew, they were both Irish and Italian. So I assume they grew up Catholic. Yes, um, they were Catholic, born and raised Catholic, taught by nuns, all of that. Um, and then when they moved to... Um, well, my mom was from Wisconsin, but she grew up on in an Irish Catholic family. Um, and my dad grew up in New Jersey in an Italian family. Um, and they met in Florida, of all places, and then moved back to Wisconsin. And when they settled in this small town, they had me and I was baptized Catholic. 
Um, and then at a certain point, they were just like kind of tired of Catholicism. Mm -hmm. And my mom really talks about like wanting to leave that whole fire and brimstone situation. So they, like all good Midwesterners, converted to Lutheranism. Mm -hmm. um, but they weren't like, we weren't a religious family, you know, we went to church every Sunday, I was in Sunday school, I got confirmed then as a, a middle schooler. So I think they wanted me to have that kind of structure and, and forced me to go certainly. But like, we didn't pray at dinner, you know, we didn't do grace or anything like that. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, it wasn't a religious household. So when I got into Young Life, I think they were kind of bewildered because I didn't just get into it. I got like obsessed with it and was like, yeah. was a pretty normal geeky kid and then became obsessed with Jesus and like started printing out Bible verses and hanging them on my walls, <laughs> like taking down Leonardo DiCaprio and River Phoenix and like putting up like- You hobby lobbied the... your bedroom? Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> like the, the centerfolds. Centerfolds went away and the Hobby Lobby went, the Christo Hobby Lobby went up and, um, and they were just sort of like, what the hell? And then, you know, I really had to sort of campaign to go to these camps that we did every, every summer. And I remember having to like put forth an argument about going to these camps because I think my mom especially was pretty suspicious um, she's always been kind of suspicious of organized religion. And I remember her being like, do you really want to go hiking in the woods with these people for a week? Like, is this something you really want to do? And I was like, yes, more than anything. Um, so they also kind of let me do whatever I wanted to do in terms of like my interests. So they were like, okay, go ahead. You know, we'll do the fundraisers this summer and get you to Colorado. And, um, I went, but I think they were probably really relieved when that fell out of fashion for me, which didn't happen until yeah. college, but it happened quickly. And I was like, oh, whoa, whoa, wait. <laughs> I have never related to anything so hard in my life. Yeah. <laughs> I, I grew up in this family, I grew up in an interfaith family, and my parents were not particularly religious. And um, we went to a Unitarian church for a long time because it was the only place where, as half Jews, we could be accepted because my dad's Jewish, so they didn't want us at that time. This was the 80s. Um, and my mom was no longer, so when you say fire and brimstone, like I think what my mom grew up in was <laughs> this, this like evangelical yeah. something that was really hardcore. And so when I joined uh, with um, a conservative evangelical church my parents were like they did the same thing what the hell <laughs> what happened to our what happened to our child yes, here yes. so yeah see I would be worried that my kids were in a cult I mean seriously well and it's so funny because um because I could I it was it's the structure of how a lot of those youth groups are, are organized and and it was funny because um the the church where my husband and I were married um was actually the church where the the jars of clay two of their two of the band members <laughs> were from that church and um one of their younger brothers was one of our youth group kids when we were volunteering oh, with man. young life so so it's like this um this this wild connection and just mm -hmm. i i remember it you know the whole you you fundraise you go to camp for the east coasters it was windy gap was the big mm -hmm. uh, the big trip yeah. um or and for the middle schoolers it was camp up at Sar uh, saranac lake which for any of our listeners who don't know where saranac lake is that is near lake placid there was an olympics there <laughs> So most people have heard of that, but, um, but yeah, so, and I'm all, all the way on the other side of the state. Yeah. <laughs> so, but for, um, us, for us, it was yeah. uh, Castaway in Minnesota, 
Rockbridge, which was somewhere in the South. I don't really remember. Maybe, maybe actually it was Missouri or Kentucky or something. I don't honestly, I don't remember. And then wilderness was this big, like your culminating trip was wilderness. And that was when you go to the, um, the Rockies and yeah. go on this like backwoods hiking trip and we carried 50 pound packs on our back and like had all our food and pots and pans with us. And then that on the last night was where they sent us all into the woods by ourselves and said, you know, here's your Bible, here's your flashlight, good luck. (laughs) I thought that was completely nuts. And it reminded me of when we were doing leadership training at um, Saranac Lake and they told us that the whole point for the week for the middle schoolers was to physically and emotionally wear them down so they'd be open to hearing the gospel or whatever, (laughs) however they wanted to phrase that. That's totally what happened. Yeah, and that stuff always, like now I look back and I think that just made me uncomfortable at the time and even more so now. (laughs) Yeah, and it's also like, you know, on that wilderness trip especially because it was like grueling, you know, we hiked Mm -hmm. for like eight hours a day and we were not hikers, we were not backpackers. We, We went on a couple like day trips to train for this trip. And so we were up in 14,000 feet mountains as 16 year olds, like, you know, figuring it out. And I remember at at the end of every day being so exhausted, I was crying. And then we would have these talks around the campfire while we ate at night where like, people were like, tell us your stories about your sins. And it was just like, I remember that feeling of just being like, like, cathartically, like letting go of all these things. And I was like, okay, this must must be what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. But like, I was just exhausted <laughs> mm-hmm. at the land, the last day yeah. we had to do this peak climb at sunrise. We like carried these rocks up to the top with us and then had to thrust them oh into the chasm. And it was I like, this rock so represents your sins. Podcast. She whines about Camp Tomashinga, which is an ELCA camp out in the middle of Kansas. And it's got air conditioning and everything. I mean, it's like, Come on, kid. No, this if is, only, oh my gosh, I, I know it's I had so a, floored. If only I had a picture of the bloody hips that I had from oh. carrying these packs. Like, imagine a 50-pound, hard, hard-cased yeah. um, pack on a 16-year-old body, and the straps dug into our hips so badly yeah. that our hip bones were just bleeding the entire week. And it was like, we were enduring, you know? And That's this like is, this brutal. Is tough. That's worse than my dad's Marine Corps stories. <laughs> oh my I mean, gosh. And I, I guess like, as, as an adult, <laughs> I would be into that now, you know, not without the Jesus stuff, but like as a kid, we didn't know what no. we were getting into. And right. then we're just at the, you know, at the mercy of our leaders who were right. these young life, right. like college age young life leaders. That's uh, crazy. Now, <laughs> young life, one of these where you have to take the, Take the Jesus, take the Jesus, take Jesus. Oh my take gosh, Jesus altar call. Yeah. 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 And they See, would do that's not at every at every camp, it was like, you know, we had um club is what they called it every night. Yes. We'd have dinner and then we'd go to club. And then club was like sitting in an amphitheater while like college aged white kids like pranced around stage and like did skits and things uh-huh. like that. And then there was like always like the very good looking dude with a guitar who was like, oh, yeah. you know, serenading <laughs> and everybody was just like, oh my God, who is this dreamboat? And, um, and then like after the sermon of some, some sort, but it was always disguised, you know, it wasn't like a sermon. Um, then there would be this call that was like, whoever wants to stand up and profess their love for Jesus mm-hmm. or well, now is the time where we welcome Jesus into our heart. And so like all these kids start standing up and saying like, my name is Melissa and I, accept Christ's love into my heart or like they'd send us out into 
the outside and say like go sit by yourself by a tree and like mm-hmm. you know ask Jesus into your heart and it was like you know all of us sitting outside looking at the stars asking Jesus to live in our hearts and like I didn't know what that meant you know yeah. I was like okay it's been over 20 years since I was involved in any way in, in young life but if I remember right the structure that they had was that the fun part was called club and then the mm-hmm. serious bible study was campaigners oh and campaigners yeah yes, right. I forgot about that oh. <laughs> yeah and that and was, was for that? like the kids who were really into it and very serious about their faith I was in campaigners <laughs> too I was in that I remember yep. that because we had like separate meetings for campaigners I think yes and yeah that was about recruitment wasn't it um well yeah because the so the club the way that they ran it here was that the club was like let's get all the cool popular kids in to do the fun stuff and that will make everybody follow and then campaigners was like a serious bible study for the kids who wanted to be the the leaders and the ones recruiting the other people so yeah it was about recruitment it's kind of like it's like a pyramid scheme (laughs) for sure because i remember (laughs) i i'm so glad you brought that up because i had totally forgotten about campaigners like we went to club and we were leaders but then we went to like campaigner group and that in those meetings we definitely talked about like how to go out into your school and talk Mm -hmm. to your classmates about young life and try to get them to come to club and like talk about all the fun things that we do and like talk about the lock-ins at the YMCA and like all this stuff and (laughs) yeah yeah, definitely recruitment (laughs) Yeah. yeah but like but I think and relating back to um the the st- the stuff with the weather and the um, the instability, it's not a stable structure because it's not really providing you with anything real. Yeah. It's just it is. I mean, it's like sales pitch, and you yes. can't build a whole life on a sales pitch. Yes. They sure make you want to think you can, though. But that's yeah. kind of yeah. like you know the tornado moment is when you yeah. realize that right you have no power. Yeah, it, I, yeah. It, it's interesting because my family also got into Amway for a while, and yeah. uh, I feel like there's a huge correlation, or that like, yeah. you know, yes. similar the Venn diagram of like Amway and Young Life is like very. Yes. It's Amway almost has, one circle. Yes. Amway has been accused of being a cult, even. It's, oh yeah, yeah. For sure. Um, I mean, it's it's terrible. Yeah, somebody tried to get me to do that, and it really you have to support your husband in the business women have like this secondary yep. role on amway i'm like it's just selling garbage i don't understand and uh, <laughs> yes my mom actually tells a weird. story about like she was working and basically these like old amway guys were always telling her that she shouldn't be working because her real job was to support her husband in Amway, and my mom was like a you know Vietnam protester and bra yeah. burner, and she was like, uh. "Do whatever the hell I want." Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> sorry. No, my husband gets into something stupid like that. He's on his own. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're on your own, buddy. It didn't last very long in yeah. our family, and I feel like my mom had a lot to do with that. Yeah, yeah. We don't I talk think, about I it. I think but, that was uh, maybe why I my dad was in it for like five minutes, and that was probably why because my mom probably just didn't. She's pretty conservative herself, but she's not that conservative. She's not into the bullshit. (laughs) So no tolerance for for that kind of bullshit. Well, say what you will about the Catholic upbringing, but hey, you know, they, Catholics can recognize bullshit. Yes. I feel like we could like ferret it out and we're like, no, 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 no. Yeah, we sniff it out. And maybe yeah. that's the Irish upbringing, though. I don't know. It's hard to say. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And in some places, um, Catholicism is quite liberal. 
Yeah, that's what, I, you know, I was thinking about that because on the coast is, is my dad was in the Marine Corps. So we grew up wherever Navy bases were essentially um, on the coast. And um, you move into the interior of the country and everything becomes more conservative, mm -hmm. including the church. And I think a lot of that has to do with outside inf cultural influence. Like mm -hmm. um, when I moved to Oklahoma, everybody was Baptist except for the Lutherans and the Catholics. And there was, you know, very small groups of Lutherans and Catholics. Um, and the Catholics that I knew that grew up in Oklahoma felt like Baptists to me. Um, mm -hmm. they, and it was really the cultural, everything in Oklahoma is, uh, somebody called it the most religious place they've lived outside of Utah. Um, yeah. You know, well, so. you were saying like it sounded like when you were reading about my sort of like Lutheran upbringing, like it sounded really, I think you were saying this earlier, uh, that it sounded really conservative. And I wonder if that's <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. that's it's part of it that like, you know, it was part of the ELCA, my, my church, but mm -hmm. I think being in the rural or semi-rural Midwest. So I'm actually curious <laughs> what your experience was in some of these um in the more conservative environment and and actually how you how um how that meshed with your own identity and the growing self-awareness that adolescents have like for me it was one of those um i just figured well okay everybody has sin and like it, it's weird being bisexual in a conservative environment because you can go, oh, well, everybody has sin, so I can obviously just suppress that mm, yeah. um, as opposed to somebody who is and, – and, and I could e easily just mm -hmm. date guys, just get married to one, you know. Mm -hmm. um, it happened to work out okay for me. <laughs> yeah. um, doesn't, doesn't work out so well for everybody, but, yeah. um, but I'm curious how, um, how those two things kind of – yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think what's true of my experience is that because of not not only because of, but definitely in part because of where I grew up in that culture that I grew up in, very small town. You know, we had uh, there were like under three thousand people when I lived there. Um, everybody knew everybody. It was a multi generational town, so everybody's parents and grandparents and great grandparents lived there. So everybody knew everybody. And we were actually kind of like outsiders in this community because we had not been there. And I had an Italian last name in a town where everybody had either a German or a Scandinavian last name. Yeah. And they were all Sutters and Steinhauers and whatever. And like, they were like, who is this Falabino and what are you and where are you from? So I basically like what it, what I knew from a very early age was this, I, this feeling of outsiderness but I feel like I was pretty, by high school, I was pretty well able to like integrate myself into the culture. I was into young life. I was a huge jock. So I was into sports. I was good at sports. So being good at sports in a small town, small Midwestern town like mm -hmm. that means popularity. Mm -hmm. So I had a relative amount of popularity because I was in sports and in young life. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like I was able to kind of like blend in a little bit more and and I don't think that I was one of the cool kids or one of the popular kids per se, but I just was able to get along with a lot of different groups because I was also a band nerd and, you know, into like musical theater and like all this stuff. And so I had a lot of different groups and, you know, in terms of my own identity, like I, I don't think I ever even started to consciously understand that I was bisexual until college, like late in college. 
And I had these experiences when I was a kid with some of my friends who were girls, but like it just, I think in large part because of where I grew up where nobody was out, you know, in the, the couple gay kids that I knew, like two of my best friends were gay guys and like they were barely out. They were only out to their friends. Um, but like, I didn't know any gay women. I didn't know any queer women. Like, you know, it was like, there was like the one teacher that we all kind of thought was a lesbian. And that was like, <laughs> you know, she was like talked about very derisively. Huh. And, but anyway, it wasn't even part of the vernacular, you know, mm-hmm. like queerness, gayness, certainly not bisexuality. You know, my understanding of, of queerness, and that wasn't even a word that we used, was that there were some, there were gay people in the world and, mm-hmm. there, and then there were straight people. And so I didn't have the vernacular. I didn't have the language for it. I didn't even have like the conscious understanding of what anything other than straightness was. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I got to college and like took a women's studies class and like put an ally sticker on my backpack and I was yeah. like, I'm an ally, you know, and like <laughs> walking around campus as an ally. And like, you know, so it really wasn't until I left that town that I could start to see myself in in this new light and like recognize that I was attracted to women and that like that was a part that could be, that didn't have to be incongruous to the fact that I had d- dated men and was attracted to men. And it, but it took a really long time to be like, is this a real thing? You know, does this mean I'm gay? Am I just experimenting? You know, like what are, what does this even mean? Because I didn't have any resources for it. Um, so really it wasn't until, God, it was probably like 23 before I was like, okay, I understand now. <laughs> and that was because <laughs> yeah. of because I became part of these really sort of like alternative and countercultural communities. So it was like the BDSM scene in Madison where like so many of the people I met were bisexual and it was just right. It was just normal. Like, so like everybody that I knew and that I became close with was like on some, on the Kinsey scale somewhere. Yeah. Um, and, and then later in roller derby, which happened a couple of years later where everybody was queer and I was like, Oh, cool. Okay. So there's like <laughs> this fluidity and that's okay. And that's real. And I am real. And this, identity is a real thing that exists and the whole book deals with a lot of those in between spaces of human existence um uh especially your own experiences with um gender expression and sexuality and um so in what ways um did you in, in what ways did that like come to the forefront as you were writing this or you know what did that bring up for you i guess is maybe what yeah. we're asking it, it's interesting because I, you know, as it took me about 10 years to write this book and the, some of the older pieces um, were not really interrogating gender um, directly. And it wasn't until much later that I realized that there was some like, there were some like little underlying threads of, of sort of gender and body, certainly of the body. Um, I think my writing has always kind of been obsessed with the body, but I didn't, I didn't realize that I was writing about gender per se. It was just sort of like my body and the spaces that it found itself in, you know? And, um, and so it really wasn't until many years after I started writing the essays in this book, like maybe 2016, 17, that I wrote 
sort of in a mad fury, I wrote a draft of the near title essay in this book, Tomboy. Mm-hmm. And that was in large part in response to the election of Donald Trump. And I was just like angry and afraid and, you know, vulnerable. And I felt like all of these things. And I just sort of like had this like rush of inspiration to write about my own sort of gender identity and like the idea that it's complicated and it's it's always been a question for me and that it's not a question that I can easily answer. Mm-hmm. And then as I was writing it, it, it became sort of, I became obsessed with this idea that like, for me, like a lot of people, gender expression and identity are so inextricably bound with sexuality for me. And that like, I was having all these experiences as an androgynous woman, like walking down the street and being misgendered and it was getting more and more frequent. And, and, and I was like starting to like look at my body in the mirror and be like, is it changing that dramatically? Like, do I look more like, you know, this masculine person than I used to? Cause I've always been, as long as I have looked like I look now, I've been misgendered, but it just started happening more often. And so I started like looking at my body and not, not really recognizing it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Although at the same time, I felt very alive in it and very good in it, but I couldn't tell how it was perceived in the world. Mm-hmm. And I was in this relationship with a man and, you know, we were mistaken for two gay guys often. And like, and that was weird and a new experience for me. And, and then I also sort of had had this like very tight community of queer people and I felt like I was losing them a little bit and I was I was building a lot of new friendships with predominantly straight people so I felt like I was losing my queer community and you know and I kept kind of having these conversations with some of my queer friends where I felt like bisexuality was really still getting erased and my bisexuality was getting erased because of this relationship that I was in Mm -hmm. and um like I remember the first time someone suggested to me that I could pass as straight because of the relationship that I was in. And I was like, oh, wait, <laughs> yeah. like, look at me, you know, like, do you think that I have ever passed as straight? Yeah. Like, since I've been wearing this body, yeah. you know, like, I used to be able to do that when I looked more traditionally feminine, but like, no one looks at me and assumes I'm straight. No one, you know, like, if anything, yeah. people look at me and assume that I'm gay and like, don't, kind of believe me when I say I'm in a relationship with a man or that yeah. I'm bi or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I wrote that, I was like, it was like a revelation because I realized that all these other things I was writing about were circling around a lot of these ideas too, particularly the body and the land and like the places we grow up and come from and then leave and how those those landscapes can inform and like imprint on a body and how they can also complicate your sense of self and identity and like this idea that I didn't I couldn't actually look at myself and have a sense of identity until I left that place you know and found myself in a new place yeah Um, and it was all all of this too is informed by class distinctions like growing up in a relatively working class family and place and but not knowing that you know thinking like having no concept of where my family fit into socioeconomic situations yeah and and, and it wasn't until I moved to New York that I was like oh (laughs) like I had this totally different experience than you 
Um, yeah. So the book really became this, the synthesis happened when I wrote that piece. And then I realized that I was in all of my work in some way I was circling around gender and the body and class and all of the ways that those things intersect. That was a long answer, but. No, actually, no, that does <laughs> cut. Two questions with that one. Cause my next question was, how do you think the land formed you? And so. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think that for me, it was like growing up where I grew up and living there for 26 years. I mean, I lived in my town, my hometown for 18. And then I lived in Madison, which is a great city, but it was only 30 miles away from the town where I grew up. So really living in the same space for 26 years. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know. And especially that's the small town. Like, I think that the ways that the, that place sort of informed my sense of self are both like I cling to a lot you know like yeah. very deeply and also like I recognize how they complicated things for me yeah you know um I write about this a lot in the book like my mom came from like this long line of farmers and they're all just like strong sturdy people <laughs> and the women in particular are like strong women farm strong Far farm that. strong for yeah. sure broad shoulders farm strong yeah, like built like a barn, you know, yeah, that's like the actual. With, with rocking biceps, that's what I learned about. Yes, my grandmother, until the day she died, had like killer biceps. Seriously. Mm -hmm. she was, with these ladies. Yeah, she was born on a farm, she grew yeah. up on a farm, and then she worked in factories her whole life, and then like her last job, she was uh, an, uh, basically like a CNA at a nursing home, so yeah. she was like lifting bodies of, yeah you know, people and like, so I talk about that a lot, like yes. these bodies that we were born into, these larger, stronger bodies. And, um, and I'm even kind of small in, you know, by comparison to some of my family, but cause I've got like the skinny Italian side too, but, um, you know, like we're just like these, these stronger breed of women, you know, yeah. who are, whose bodies are like, I, f I feel like they're so deeply connected to the land. And so our, and our senses of identity are so deeply connected to the land too, because in some part, at least, like we rely on the land to feed our families. And, you know, so mm -hmm. we're, we're constantly thinking about the weather and we're thinking about like what our crops are doing. And if we have a bad season, it's going to be, it can be terrible. And, yeah. you know, and so these are the, th these are the ways that we are, like very deeply and I think um, intergenerationally connected mm -hmm. to the land and the volatility of the land. Um, but then also like, you know, we're raised being kicked out of the house at 8 a.m. and like told not to come home until dinner. And so we're running yeah. around in the woods and the fields and the farms. Like, you know, I just kind of learned how to be a person outside and yeah. like in spaces that were vast and um, climbing trees and building forts and just walking for hours and biking and like, you know, that really shaped my sort of connection to the, to the land and the landscape. And yeah, so that's how it connected me. And then, you know, and then, it, and then it complicates things because, you know, I grew up thinking like, this is my place and this is where I come from and this is my home that I can claim. And then 
never being really taught the stories of colonization and like mm -hmm. we grew up on ho-chunk land which was yeah. you know the, the well, you native know you're tribe. so connected to the land the last thing they're going to tell you is it's not yours no no <laughs> one tells us that you know we learn about no. the native americans but we don't we don't learn the real history and so like i remember having that slow realization that this place that i claim I cannot claim and I can never claim yeah. and you know and the people who try to claim it are just lying and yeah um and ignoring this violent past that we come from and and so much of my book is about that like the mm -hmm. stories we allow ourselves to tell and the stories we don't allow ourselves to tell the things we look at and the things we don't look at and so mm -hmm. you know we claim we're we fiercely tornado moment we're avoiding the tornado by not talking about that. exactly exactly yeah this tornado keeps coming up over and over again during this conversation. In my it's head. really, again, it's my origin story. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's just, it's the land shifting underneath you. Everything you thought was real is, is temporary, not real. It's, it's subject to destruction. And, Absolutely. You know, we do everything we can to avoid it, but boy, it, it comes and gets us anyway, doesn't it? Yeah. Not There's nothing we can do. <laughs> it changes yeah. our landscape. Yeah. And what better way to learn, you know, that you actually have no control and no power over over your life that like yeah. we are just subject to whatever the universe is going to throw at us, you know? Definitely. It's um, a perfect metaphor. Yeah. Exactly. It's a it's amazing. So for me as you know, I, I grew up in a city. I grew up in New York, well, not right in the city, but I mean I grew up in um in a small city in, in New York. And so none of that was anything I had ever experienced. And yeah, it still was very relatable. Like I could read that and it just, it just drew me in and I was riveted because to me, this is like, I'm learning about a completely different cultural experience from my own. And that, that fascinated me. And it, it, it I think there was something in there when, um, in the first essay, when, um, when you were talking about, um, people not expressing their emotions mm -hmm. um, openly. And I thought, well, that's very foreign to me because I grew up in a, a family where, I mean, I also, my mother's family is Italian, so there is no such thing as bottling it in. Right. <laughs> you just express <laughs> it. But yeah. at the same time, um, it reminded me so much of um, a friend of my husband's brother once said that where she lived, they were having trouble getting women to enroll in college. And she said, what they don't understand is that if you don't have decent roads and clean water and food to eat, you don't care about going to college. Yeah. You want good roads and clean water and food to eat before yeah. you can consider any of that. And so I, it, it reminded me of that because it, it felt like there's this structure there um, to life where you grew up that just does not support um, yes. that level of introspection, that that's a yeah. privilege of living in a place where I don't have to work the land. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So much of that is, is for me tied to, you know, I was writing this book and I was like, it's about the Midwest, it's about the Midwest, it's about the Midwest. I kept saying that. Like my elevator pitch was it was a book about the Midwest. But by the time I was finished writing it, I realized that it was much more about like ruralness and working class communities than it was about the Midwest because mm -hmm. I had people I've had people writing me you know that they're like oh I grew up in small town Connecticut and it was exactly like this you know yeah. in my family yeah, and yeah. So, so much of it is like exactly that like w the resources we have 
And, and, you know, the town that I grew up in was like relatively affluent compared to all of the other towns in my, in my area. Like it was a small town. It wasn't a suburb, but it was, you know, had a good school district and was, was pretty, you know, had good resources. But even so, it wasn't like we didn't have the sort of intellectual structure, you know, to talk about things. And so even though like my family, my, my immediate family was in like a pretty good, we, we were fine. We weren't for want of anything. Um, I think because of where my mother's family came from and like her, you know, my extended family and my grandparents, like that culture gets ingrained in you. And, you know, you don't, when you don't grow up talking about things, you don't learn how to, and you don't, you don't, you certainly don't know about like (laughs) interrogating ideas of identity. Like identity isn't even something that is a, that's not even a word that anyone uses, you know, it's like, and maybe it is now, but I, I think for families like mine, it was just like, you go to work and you do the work and you come home and there's food on the table and then you go to bed and you do it again. And that's what life is. Um, but do you think Midwest nice is a Midwest thing though? Um, oh, for sure. It, it's, for sure. it's really, so we live um, right on the cusp of the Midwest, but I noticed when I moved up here from Oklahoma, I could talk about difficult things down there and everybody would, would offer solutions. Everybody would just come together and they get it done. Mm-hmm. They'd solve mm-hmm. the problem. When I moved up here, it, um, I won't ever join another committee again. I'm done with that because every time I pointed out something difficult or brought up a difficult situation that needed help or needed to be addressed, um, I was told I was being extremely rude. Like mm. I could bring it up the nicest way possible. So I thought, oh, well, it's just the way I'm saying it. No, I'd be really nice about it as far as, you know, yeah. delicate. No, still rude. It's considered rude to talk about difficult things. Yeah. yeah. There's a mantra, you know, that's like, we don't talk about religion. We don't talk about politics. We don't talk about, yeah. you know, anything, money. We yeah, certainly don't talk about money. Let's like, not talk about the schools or anything else. But it's really, and I heard it Kansas nice. I didn't hear it until recently, Midwest nice. But um, yeah. I didn't realize this was the whole Midwest. And this explains my problem of, a I, I, little bit of culture shock, uh, and that's where it comes from, is this idea of let's not talk about anything difficult ever, and uh, just being blind to all these things that are cropping up. Um, I don't know, do you think it would have been harder to deal with this growing up on the, um, like where you are now in New York on the coast? Do you think that uh, you it would have taken you longer or shorter to recognize your own sexuality? I mean, it's kind of impossible for me to know, but I yeah. can only, I can only say, you know, I can only speculate that had I grown up on the coast, it would not have taken me as long because I probably yeah. would have been exposed to a lot more, you know, yeah. like I just didn't see anything other than, you know, the heteronormative patriarchal structure. And that's yeah. literally all I saw. And also the white one. I didn't see anyone other than white people. You know, we had one black family in our town. Yeah. And like, that was it. And so had I grown up in a place where we, where I just saw more of life and like Mm -hmm. saw more people who weren't straight and who weren't, or, or just weren't participating in like the traditional structures, 
um, people who are eschewing having children, people mm -hmm. who are not getting married, you know, even straight people who are eschewing those things. Yeah. I think, you know, it would have been, I, I can only imagine, you know, I can only imagine that <laughs> that would have like helped me realize like, oh, okay, this is a normal thing for a person to want or a way or a path that you can take. You know, we don't all have to get married. We don't all have to have children. We don't, we aren't all straight. Um, and then beyond that, you know, beyond the sort of realms of family and, and, um, and uh, sexuality, like, yeah, just seeing more people of color, seeing people from any other sort of like racial uh, identity. Yeah. Um, yeah. I can, you know, I just think that it would lead to a much richer life and even just seeing people that come from different places and have different experiences can, I think, help people understand that yes, maybe they yes, fit in definitely. in a different way. We brought this up. I wanted to talk about um, the chapter on uh, kids cracked me up. <laughs> I laughed out loud when I heard uh, something about two, two points. One was when your friends keep saying, kids are great, kids are great, you need to have kids. And I laughed. Kids are, I have three. <laughs> They're not great. I don't know if you laughed when you read that, Amy. Like, no. Oh my gosh. Well, okay. So I have this thing better. about when, when yeah. people insist that people have to have children. I yeah. have known since I was a little tiny child that I wanted to be a parent someday. Yeah, me too. Me too. But like, because I've known that, I, it makes me more... I don't know, sympathetic maybe to people who do not want children because I really feel very strongly that don't have them if you don't want them because children are a pain in the ass. I'm like reading kids are great. Like maybe, but Okay, yeah. my children are great. Anybody you know, who's listening to this and thinks I mean my children are not great, no, my children no, are wonderful. But the other thing is, too, it really minimizes the job as a parent. I do. Yeah. Um, it's hard enough because yes. I, I was a church secretary for five years, and now I'm not. And before that, I was a kid mom for 13 years. That This is my job. And mm -hmm. to say that anybody can do it or that's just super easy and everybody should do it, no, no. Oh, no. <laughs> and it's just like, you know, I, the, you. I the, mean, the people that I – the people that I know who like are my people are the people who understand that fundamentally. And yeah. I have a ton of friends who have kids, but like they're the first people to say, if you're ambivalent, don't do it. Or, yeah. you know, yeah. like this is the hardest thing I've ever done. And then also validating like, you don't have to do this. No. And, like, and there's two other things. Okay. First, I want to get this out of the way because um, I come from a family of 10 and I have three. My mom comes from her, her family, they only had two. Mm. Um, and it was a half brother. Actually, she has two half brothers, but they were in different homes. Um, her grandmother, my grandmother, her mother comes from 11. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned, well, I don't know why. Think about that. If you're the oldest of 11, how many more kids do you want to raise? Well, that's, I mean, that was my yeah. mom's experience. My mom was the, yeah, exactly. my, my mom was the oldest of eight. Yep. Um, her mom was the oldest, I believe, of nine. Yeah. Um, her mother had 11. Yep. Um, so my yeah. mom, my mom raised 
many of her siblings. Exactly. She, so that's both, yeah, it totally. Both of my grandparents worked. I totally get that. Yeah. 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 Like one of my, you know, they worked different shifts too. So like my yeah. grandmother worked the first shift, my grandfather worked the third shift, uh, GM. Um, and so my mom came home from school and like helped her siblings with their homework and made them dinner and then yeah. helped with breakfast you're, in you're the morning. Them. I mean, the first two raised the rest. So that's why she's yeah. talking yeah. to But you she know, like it's, one it's, is good. <laughs> we laughed at. It's ridiculous the pressure that's put on people to yeah. have kids. I mean, there is no biological imperative at this point to populate the planet or populate it. And this was ending this... very soon anyway. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, we don't have to worry about it. how many kids you want. You don't want to resume. Oh, the last point I wanted to bring up, you had a kid. This stepdaughter essentially is what she was. I mean, without, yeah. you know, I, you know, the piece of paper is a piece of paper. You do things in your life that, um, you know, when you live with somebody for a long time, yeah, that's a marriage. And, and I don't see it as any different than mine. But when right. you, um, that kid was with you, you were doing very motherly things with her. Right. Um, Even though I didn't know what I was doing. Um, exactly. <laughs> but, I mean, who does? But yeah. <laughs> at the same time, I think that's a good experience for you to have to know, hey, you know what? I really, other people's kids, great. Um, uh, I think it's a very insightful brave thing to do to say hey you know what i'm not going to be i i'm not cut out for this i don't want to do this i'm not going to do this this yeah. is my thing um yeah. you know not everybody can be a carpenter you know or any right. other job uh, i certainly right. could be a college professor um <laughs> good for you you know <laughs> too. but uh you know um it's i i see what he goes through no way that's everybody else's kid uh-uh so yeah. um yeah i I, I just really enjoyed that essay in particular, I think because it oh, just highlights you. that this is a real job that people do, and it's not something to be taken lightly. Um, yeah. I just felt a lot of validation through that. And like, and I'm, I can't Absolutely. stop at three kids. That's, that's a good number. I don't, <laughs> don't have to have 11. No. <laughs> so take that. Anyway. So I guess one one thing that, that we were curious about is, did you have a difficult time getting this published um, as far as the content or? Um... Yeah, I mean, I had a, I had a, it was a long road to get this book published for sure. Um, you know, a lot of rejection along the way. I sent out the manuscript in a different form um, a couple times to different contests and things like that. I tried to get agents for, for years. I tried to get an agent. And I would get like a little bit of, um, you know, initial interest and they'd say, yeah, send me the essays. And then I would send them and then I would hear nothing back. And honestly, I think w what helped me get my agent and sell the book was when I wrote more specifically about identity. It was really that tomboy piece. Interesting. And it was, it was the stuff that was a little more abstract that was, I think, hard for people to get their their heads around like they were like how do the this tornado and these moths and this weird geological terrain have anything to do with anything you know and like what do they yeah. mean what does it mean and then when I wrote tomboy everything sort of crystallized and I was able to write a proposal with my I got an agent based on that essay basically she was like she wanted to represent women and queer people and was like this you know I haven't seen this perspective. Um, and so 
once I got with her, we worked on a proposal together and basically took like four or five of the essays that I had drafts already written mm-hmm. and wrote this proposal, this 50 page proposal, basically, you know, stringing them together under the sort of main themes and like making sense of all yeah. of the connections and stuff. And so that actually made it having the book exist under this kind of umbrella of like mm-hmm. gender and sexuality and the body and class. Those were all things that people understood as terms, I think. Right. So okay. that's when it sold. So we put this proposal together and then we sent it out in September of 2018 to probably like 15 publishers. Wow. And then that's when I got accepted. So yeah, I It was a long road and I definitely almost quit many times because <laughs> I was like, nobody gets what I'm doing and I don't even get what I'm doing. So. <laughs> <laughs> I saw it in, the, in my Amazon email. It was an Amazon first read, which is the program. Oh, yeah. You have Prime, you get one free book a month. And I, mm-hmm. I've only downloaded, I've downloaded one, a lot of them, but I've only read like two <laughs> actually read for two and this one i so i stopped downloading but i saw that there and i'm like okay i gotta read that <laughs> yeah well that was it was kind of how i was too i kept it kept turning up in my ads and i was like hmm, amazon what are you trying to tell me here yeah. <laughs> yeah. the algorithm is working <laughs> yeah well i mean it, it certainly was because sometimes the ads i get like have nothing yeah. to do with me right <laughs> so did you what kind of thrill was that or was it a thrill or is it more of a help or hindrance being an Amazon Prime first read? Um, I mean, honestly, it has been a huge help in terms of getting the book into readers' hands. Like, I yeah. think that program yeah. has gotten the book, I mean, thousands of readers at this point. Wow. And it's, I think you get paid that, for those? Yeah. Oh. There's like, a, it's like basically like you get a, um, a one payment with um, one big lump sum payment if you're a part of the program. Oh, wow. So it's a huge boon for authors. And, um, you know, I mean, the Amazon stuff is, you know, I have uh, some ambivalence about it. And yeah. it's, uh, yes. I buy all my books at independent bookstores. So yeah. do with that information what you will. But um, it's definitely in terms of a, giving a platform for writers, a huge yeah. deal. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, and my team was really great. They were, you know, my editor and my publicist and stuff. They're all awesome. So, yeah, I was hoping that wasn't a bad deal for you because I felt like, oh god, I, it's free. I hope it's not a bad deal. But yeah. oh yeah, no. I mean, it's it's fine. It's like you know, I think at this point, it's more important for me to get the book into hands of people than to mm-hmm. get more money. You know, I got a yeah, pretty decent yeah, advance right. for the book, and I feel like I've been paid for it. You okay. know, in a in a reasonable way like a lot of people don't get reasonably paid for their art at all um so at this point i just want as many people to read it as as they can and it's been really cool because like a lot of i've gotten a lot of emails from strangers and you know little notes on twitter and instagram from people who are finding it and like big bisexual following for sure just yes, like I've never I've seen this like this bisexual po- book <laughs> in there and then the next there month, not many Ellison was in there too but oh, I was yeah. like wow they finally Amazon's finally discovered us and, and <laughs> I was just I'm like oh I gotta read this in but uh, 2020 finally yeah. people are understanding that bisexual people are book. real <laughs> <laughs> um what else were we gonna talk about Amy I, I think we pretty much covered everything. So yeah. I guess the only, only thing is... Go ahead. 
Oh, is um, if uh, if you want to tell us if you've got anything coming up, any events or projects or. Oh yeah, um, definitely. Let's see. Um, well, um, I guess I had all my launch events, but um, I, I'm going to do be doing a couple readings coming up. Mm -hmm. Um, there's one on here. Let me get, let me get it up here. I have a calendar full of stuff. Um, okay. I've got a reading on September 21st. It's for a reading series called Memoir Monday. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, I mean, everything is online, obviously. Yeah. Um, so that's also online. Um, and then, what else do I have? I've got more. Oh, another reading on October 20th with the House of Speakeasy. And then another one on the 22nd um, with, with this great reading series called The Antibody, which was formed in the time of COVID. Um, so these are all online. Um, and my next sort of writing adventure is I'm working on a novel and I will have an essay in an anthology that's coming out um, in 2022 that's basically a kind of um, uh, anniversary celebration slash reimagining of Helen Gurley Brown's Sex and the Single Girl. Okay. Um, so that'll be out and I'll have an essay in that and I'm sure it will have something to do with bisexuality. <laughs> yeah, all of it, all of everything awesome. does. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, what a great book. It yeah. Thank you. Melissa Falabino. Um, thank you again. And to Amy, of course, as always, thank you so much. Book is called Top Boy Land Essays and is available at booksellers everywhere and Amazon. And remember, there's a whole bi-plus universe ready to embrace you. Reach out and find your community.